Thank you for tuning in to Strange Studies of Strange Stories. The following podcast is from our original show, the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast, which ran over 600 episodes from 2009 to 2022, and is exactly the kind of thing you can expect from us here, albeit with an expanded focus on all the best in horror, science fiction, and fantasy. There's a new free episode every month, or subscribe at patreon.com slash Media to get new shows every week. Thanks again, and enjoy. HPpodcraft.com <laughs> How do other wives do it? I stay busy, busy with the Ann Arbor Grant Review programs and the seminar, saying brightly, oh yes, Alan is in Columbia setting up a biological pest control program. Isn't it wonderful? But inside, I imagine you being surrounded by 19-year-old raven-haired cooing beauties, everyone panting with social dedication and filthy rich, and 40 inches of bosom busting out of her delicate lingerie. I even figured it in centimeters. That's 101.6 centimeters of busting. Oh, darling, darling. Do what you want, only come home safe. That is the sort of sensual introduction to the Screwfly Solution by Rakuna Sheldon. Now, Rakuna Sheldon was one of the many pen names of Alice Bradley Sheldon, and we're going to talk about her and this story on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We're here at hppodcraft.com and Patreon. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. The Screwfly Solution is a 1977 short story. It was published in Analog. It's a bit more of a science fiction horror story than a, than a weird tale. Yeah. It feels almost like a violent Twilight Zone episode in a way. Yeah. But mm. we have had many listeners recommend this story to us over the years, lots of times. And uh, it felt like time to finally tackle it. And after a couple of months of weird horror, I'm definitely down for some science fiction. But also, there are obvious gender themes in this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about a contagion that causes men to murder women. And socially, I feel like we're in an era where women's rights or lack thereof are front of mind in the news every day. So mm-hmm. it seemed also like a good time to discuss this one. Mm, yeah. Now, my wife, Heather Clinky, I like to put her in her place. And <laughs> by that, I mean ask her politely to read for the show <laughs> because I think it's a good place for her. Yeah, And yeah. Uh, she's doing that for us today. So thank you, Heather, for being our reader. Heather, great reading as always. Now, I at first assumed that Rakuna Sheldon was a made-up name, like maybe by a raccoon pretending to be human. <laughs> who was just being a little too obvious. But as you say, it's a pseudonym for Alice B. Sheldon. What do we know about her? Alice Bradley Sheldon was awesome. She she has an awesome bio, and I can talk about her all day, but I want to focus on her writing. Yeah, her life story was blowing me away as well as I was reading up on it. But we do have a lot to cover, so let's just do the quick version. Yeah, so she was born in 1915. She traveled around the world when she was growing up. She was an artist. She was in the Air Force during World War II. She was a major, one of the few female majors, an intelligence officer. Her expertise was reading aerial intelligence photographs. And you say traveled the world growing up. This wasn't like vacation in Europe or one of our typical author bios. Her parents no. were these Chicago academics, and they dragged her around Central Africa. You could see photos of her as a little girl in her little dress surrounded by all these tribespeople. So mm-hmm. she, she had a pretty unconventional youth. She got published after the war in The New Yorker. She was a spy for the CIA, and she got her doctorate in experimental psychology in 1967. She wrote her stuff under the pen name James Tiptree, Jr., as not to affect her academic career. And she was seemingly bisexual. Uh, She said, I like some men a lot, but from the start, before I knew anything, it was always girls and women who lit me up. Although she was married a couple of times. Yes, she was married twice. She got into sci-fi in 1924 by reading weird tales, but she didn't start writing sci-fi until much later. 
I was glad to see it was weird tales that got her interested in fiction. She she got that Lovecraft fever. <laughs> well, yeah, if she started reading in 24, she definitely read some Lovecraft. Oh, yeah. She picked up the name James Tiptree Jr. in 1967, which she got from a jar of marmalade, and her husband said it would be good to throw in the junior. You know, just for good measure, I guess. Well, Tiptree was the brand of marmalade. Yes. It, it, it wasn't like a jar of marmalade suggested the name for her. No. I think James Tiptree would be good. <laughs> All the other jars in the pantry agree. I would be woefully concerned about our <laughs> listeners if they thought that that's what I was trying to communicate. <laughs> now, about her nom de plume, she said, a male name seemed like good camouflage. I had the feeling that a man would slip by less observed. I've had too many experiences in my life of being the first woman in some damned occupation. Once she started writing the type of stuff that she was actually into, sci-fi nerd stuff, she was surprised to find, I'm quoting her, was surprised to find that her stories were immediately accepted for publication and quickly became popular. Her first sci-fi story as Tiptree was Birth of a Salesman in 1968 in Analog Science Fiction, in fact, edited by John W. Campbell, yep. who wrote, who goes there? Uh, she wrote under Rakuna, but she didn't get any traction with that name. So she wrote in as Tiptree to push Rakuna's work. <laughs> So she was like, I think this raccoon is great, you know, but it's yeah, her. She, her one pseudonym mentored the other pseudonym. Which yeah. was brilliant. <laughs> and I also believe she got the name Rakuna from a jar of raccoons. <laughs> yes. So the thing was, people knew Tiptree was a pseudonym, but they thought it was a man protecting his identity because he was in the intelligence community. Robert Silverberg wrote, it has been suggested that Tiptree is female, a theory that I find absurd. For there is to me something ineluctably masculine about Tiptree's writing. Uh, Silverberg also compared Tiptree's writing to Ernest Hemingway and in fact found Tiptree to be superior in masculinity to Hemingway. Yeah. He was snowed, man. <laughs> well, it just goes to show you how these ideas of gender are so subjective. Sure, and Silverberg wasn't the only one who insisted she was male. Harlan Ellison introduced Tiptree's story in the anthology again, Dangerous Visions, with the opinion that uh, Kate Wilhelm is the woman to beat this year, but Tiptree is the man. <laughs> she wrote lots of letters as Tiptree to other writers, including Ursula K. Le Guin and Joanna Russ. She was honest about all aspects of her life, except for the fact that she was a woman. Yeah, and Joanna Russ, I think, also firmly believed that, that Tiptree was a man. Yeah. Now, she was very feminist as a man, like she had a lot of feminist ideas that she pushed forward. Yeah. Uh, but the ruse, however, was up when Tiptree mentioned that his mother died and people pieced it together and then the truth was out. Right. Some fans tracked down the obituary for her mother in Chicago, saw Alice's real name on there, put the pieces together because she revealed things about her youth in Chicago and, and traveling mm -hmm. around the world in years prior. So that, that was kind of how they did the detective work. She wrote this to Ursula K. Le Guin after she had found out. It says, I never wrote you anything but the exact truth. There is no calculation or intent to deceive other than the signature, which over eight years became just another nickname. Anything else is just plain me. The thing is, I'm a 61-year-old woman named Alice Sheldon, nicknamed Allie. Solitary by nature, but married for 37 years to a very nice man considerably older who doesn't read my stuff, but is glad I like writing. Her life unfortunately ended quite sadly uh, she had failing health and her husband became very ill and could not take care of himself so she had to take care of him while she was ill but it was really hard for her in 1979 in a letter she confessed to wanting to kill herself while she was still mobile but she had nobody that would care for her husband she couldn't bear killing him unfortunately in 1987 she did just that she shot him in his sleep and then she shot herself it's a sad intermingling of, of love and violence, much like this story, the mm. Screwfly Solution. I was thinking that if I were to adapt the story to a film, 
even though I get annoyed by this type of format, it would be really tough not to do some wraparound about her life as well. You know, yeah. it's just too interesting. The Screwfly Solution was adapted for the Masters of Horror anthology series by screenwriter Sam Hamm, who, you know, he wrote Tim Burton's Batman right. and uh, Joe Dante, who directed Gremlins. I haven't had a chance to watch it yet, but it's definitely on no. the list. And the title of the story is a tip to what it's about. Screwflies are nasty, parasitic flies whose larvae eat living tissue. Screwworm females lay 250 to 500 eggs in the exposed flesh of warm-blooded animals, including humans, such yeah. in, as in wounds and the navels of newborn animals. Uh. The, the larvae hatch and burrow into the surrounding tissue as they feed. Should the wound be disturbed during this time, the larvae burrow or screw deeper into the flesh, uh. thus the insect's name. Yeah. The maggots are capable of causing severe tissue damage or even death to the host. The United States officially eradicated the screw in 1982 using the sterile insect technique. So this would have already been known to a lot of people by the time the story came out. That's the right. screwfly solution. Researchers eliminated the population of screw flies by releasing large amounts of sterilized males that would then compete with fertile males, thus reducing the native population more with each generation this is done uh, until, yes. until there's just no more babies to be born anymore. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the what the title of the story means. All that said, let's get into it. It begins with this guy, Alan, who's in Colombia, South America, doing some research. We open with him in a hot hotel room alone, and he reads that letter we heard in the opening. It's from his wife, Anne, who's back in Ann Arbor. Uh, We assume she's an academic as well, from what she says. And and this is an epistolary story for the most part. Much of the content comes through letters and clippings. She misses him, and they seem to be very much in love with each other, even if she's a bit jealous. She talks about this cult, the Sons of Adam, in passing— and that the Red Cross is setting up shelters for refugees from this cult. She includes a news clipping from their mutual friend, Barney, and they all do seem to be scientists, Barney included. Yeah, that refugee camp is in Ashton, Georgia. She writes, imagine refugees in the USA. I heard two little girls were carried out all slashed up. Oh, Alan. So this is sort of like, you know, the beginning of a zombie movie when you're hearing reports of things over the news, but nobody is really aware how bad it's going to get. So all over the world, it seems there are violent attacks that are focused on women by men. A military officer kills his wife and three kids because God told him to clean the place up. Barney's talked up as being a very kind, shy, around women kind of fellow, and he's also working on some kind of insecticide that will be safe for people and birds. Their daughter, Alan's daughter, is going back to school, but there is something strange here, which kind of I I thought was odd. She says about the daughter, I'll miss her frightfully in spite of her being at that stage where I'm her worst enemy, the sullen, sexy subteens. Yeah, I mean, I just think she means that through, you know, the girls through puberty and she's in that phase where her social life and school life and boyfriends, et cetera, are more important than her family. It's a difficult time for mothers and daughters. Not everybody, but many. That's that's when they can really start to be at odds with one another. Mm -hmm. But I I think it also sets up, you know, this is a girl that's she's sexualized. She's Mm -hmm. not a kid anymore. We find Alan is working on some kind of treatment for paralyzed children down there in South America. Right. He's thinking about uh, his data and his, his experiments. It says, look for the vulnerable link in the behavioral chain. How often Barney, Dr. Barnard Braithwaite, that's Barney that's been referenced in these letters, had pounded this into his skull. He's thinking, where is it? Where You know, he's, he's trying to cut down on cane flies in Columbia here mm-hmm. because these children are, are being paralyzed due to insect infestation. And so he's doing the same thing. He's working on a sterile insect technique to try and keep that from happening. Now, we get another letter from Anne. She talks about Barney investigating the Sons of Adam thing. It seems that there isn't much being done about it. People are just kind of letting it happen. There's some government action, but nowhere near what there should be. 
Anne's called her sister Pauline to check in on her, but she seems nervous and uh, wants to sell her house before she moves away. Yeah, her sister's over in San Diego. Uh, This part was pretty chilling to me. Clearly, this contagious hysteria is growing, but people are just sort of looking the other way. As he said, she writes, the weird part is that nobody seems to be doing anything as if it's just too big. Selena Peters has been printing some acid comments like, when one man kills his wife, you call it murder. But when enough do it, we call it a lifestyle. I think it's spreading, but nobody knows because the media have been asked to downplay it. In some respects, it may seem far-fetched that all these women are being killed and nobody's doing anything. But to be honest, you know, in this country now, children are being murdered in school shootings every day. And it's the same thing. Hmm. You know, I don't know what we can do about it. Thoughts and prayers. I'll mm-hmm. write some acid comments on the internet. I mean, this whole section just really rang true to me. Yeah. How these massively horrible things can be happening, and yet people just kind of turn a blind eye to it. And Barney's been theorizing that it's happening across a certain latitude. He's kind of trying to piece together, you know, where the infection's going to go next. There's another clipping included from Barney. It's an account of an army sergeant with a bunch of soldiers who was going down with some scientists and doctors to investigate what was going on with the epidemic. Two of the scientists were women. One was Dr. Dr. Elaine Fay. They were down in Arkansas and found a town that had a big sign in front of it that said, Sons of Adam, Liberated Zone. There are no women or children around in this town, but everybody seems very relaxed which is kind of the really disturbing thing about it. Nobody's worried. Everybody's kind of chilling and laughing. The mayor comes to see them. And when he sees a woman, he just flips out. It says he started yelling. We all had to get the hell back. So this liberated zone means that they've murdered all the women that would be that have entered this zone. They calmed him down and got him to agree to have Dr. Faye set up in the warehouse to do their testing. The sergeant stayed there with her as she looked around for any clues to what might be going on. She found a booklet called Man Listens to God by Reverend McKillhenny. The sergeant read it as Dr. Fay went to rest in another room. Now, this book talks about uh, how man is on trial with God, and if they want a new life, they have to fulfill their duty. And the language of the sergeant shifts a bit here. He said that it's not that stupid Sunday school stuff, but it's deep. It's like he's falling for it as he reads it, yeah. Uh, the mayor came in and saw that he was reading the book and was very pleased by this. The mayor then just got up and then left, closing the door behind him. And the sergeant kind of looked out the window and saw some more guys hanging out, playing some guitar, laughing. It felt very tranquil to him. When the mayor came back, he was disheveled with blood on him and his fly was open and there was blood on his crotch. Hmm. The sergeant says he didn't feel afraid. The mayor told him that he needed to come and see something. And so the sergeant went down with him to the room where Dr. Fay was. I saw Dr. Fay lying on the cot in a peaceful appearance. She was lying straight. Her clothing was to some extent different, but her legs were together. I was glad to see that. Her blouse was pulled up and I saw there was a cut or incision on her abdomen. The blood was coming out there, or it had been coming out there like a mouth. It wasn't moving at this time. Also, her throat was cut open. My God, it's like it's almost an afterthought. Also, her throat was cut open. He talks about how she's lying there in her clothing. That's the stuff that he notices first, not the blood and the death. Yeah. It seems like this dude is nuts. So the mayor says to the mayor said to him, I did it for you. Do you understand? And the sergeant describes the mayor as being like a benevolent father. He says to him, Dr. Faye was very dangerous. She was what they call a crypto female, the most mm-hmm. dangerous kind. He had exposed her and purified the situation. He was very straightforward. I didn't feel confused at all. I knew he had done what was right. The sergeant goes on to say that the book said, Man must purify himself and show God a clean world. 
He said some people raised the question of how can man reproduce without women. But such people missed the point. The point is that as long as man depends on the old filthy animal way, God won't help him. When man gets rid of his animal part, which is woman, this is the signal God is awaiting. Then God will reveal the new, true, clean way. Maybe angels will come, bringing new souls. Or maybe we will live forever. But it is not our place to speculate, only to obey. He said some men here had seen an angel of the Lord. We find out the sergeant told Dr. Premack that Dr. Fay had been taken care of, and he was sent away. He said he wanted to stay in the liberated zone. The whole scene was incredibly messed up, man. Yeah, I, I, it made me very uncomfortable. and It made me feel a little sick, yeah. I mean, we cover lots of horror stories, but they're so fantastical Yeah, that there's a bit of distance behind it. Whereas the actions that are described in this are things that happen. People kill other people, and men kill women. Yeah. And there are people whose you know minds can shift and do these very violent acts. I, right, and it's that shift of mind where... You know, he's not even really that upset about this horrific act of violence. Where it's the mayor that goes back and commits this act of violence. Yeah. Barney's notes on the article state that this cult is a symptom of the problem, but not the cause. Right. He made a note in the margin. Man's religion and metaphysics are the voices of his glands. Schoenweiser, 1878. Well, I don't know if that's a real philosopher or not, but the notion is right. You know, we have biological urges that we then use art and religion and culture to justify. Mm. You know, we come up with reasons why we're doing them. So he's he's trying to say this is very clearly some kind of epidemiological thing that we've got to deal with here. But, you know, don't get snowed in by this Sons of Adam cult. They're not causing this. That's just the symptom. So Alan's work with uh, trying to stop the cane fly, it's working out. He found a weak link in their life cycle. Uh, there are a lot of breeding males and only a few fertile females. And they could release a pheromone and release sterilized now, maybe it's males, and I misquoted that, but it doesn't say females in the story? Because what you described at the front was sterilized males. That was the screwfly solution, which they are aware of. So it says, actually, in the text, it would be the screwfly solution all over again with the sexes reversed. Concentrate okay. the pheromone gotcha. release, sterilized females. So it's the same thing, but it's gender swapped. Using that, in a few generations, all of them would die out. Right. So no more tormented human bodies with those stinking larvae in their nasal passages and brain. Oh, so ghastly, the story. Yeah. We find out from another letter from Anne that she can't get a hold of her sister in San Diego. When she called, some strange man answered, you know, in her sister's house, yelled at her and just hung up. She's afraid of what's going on. She says that the Red Cross is finding these areas with no women and no children, even boys, and that what seems to be going on is mass femicide. And with all of this going on, Anne's attitude is still a little jolting. She talks about a friend of hers, Lillian. Lillian's on some kind of Save the Women committee, like we were an endangered species. <laughs> you know Lillian. Okay. It just plays into that notion that people don't really think bad things are going to happen. Yeah. You know, you, people are in denial until it's right in your face. Even though there are these aerial photos of mass graves in Lubbock, she writes, St. Louis has become completely cut off. Nobody knows what's happening there. Places are just vanishing from the news. All that, she still makes a joke. She says, somebody at the UN had proposed a convention on, you won't believe this, femicide. It sounds like a deodorant spray. Yeah. She's really not treating this seriously. But maybe she's joking out of fear. It's, it's hard to tell. It could be. Yeah. But I think you really nailed something here. It's like when bad things are going on, people don't want bad things to be happening. So they mm. will look the other way. They'll turn a blind eye to it, even though this woman is in a very critical position. I mean, she's in a lot of danger, potentially. Yeah. But right now it's all happening over there. So, yes. So she also notes that a neighbor of theirs, George, came back from Georgia talking about God's will, even though he was a lifelong atheist. And she is waiting for 
her daughter, Amy, to return home. She also mentions that Barney's enzyme that he used on a spruce budworm. It confuses the bug and it causes it to try and mate with the female's head. And she jokes that there are going to be some pretty puzzled female spruce worms. Yeah, well, (laughs) so it's yet another way to alter insect behavior in order to cause eradication, although it's introducing this concept that doesn't necessarily have to be sterilization. If you affect some other type of behavior in the insect, it can also keep the population down or eradicate the population. So just the fact that these spruce worms, so disgusting, they're mating with the heads of the females instead of the correct anatomical part. That's the strategy. So two weeks later, Alan is finally out of Columbia. He needs to be with his family. He gets stuck in Miami with a six-hour layover, and he notices there are no attractive, sexy ladies walking around. But it's creepier than that in the writing. It says, The parade of young girls in crotch-type pastel jeans, the flounces, boots, wild hats and hairdos, and startling expanses of newly tanned skin, the brilliant fabrics barely confining the bob of breasts and buttocks. She is a masculine writer. Or at least she she has an idea of what's going on behind the eyes anyway. Sure. I thought that was good. Good description. He doesn't see any of those types of women. What he does see is groups of women in drab clothes, covered up, moving together in groups, and they are frightened. But the men all just seem very relaxed. They're all joking, having a great time. Nobody's worried about anything. And then he looks at the newspaper and he sees a strange ad. It says, the Forset Funeral Home regretfully announces it will no longer accept female cadavers. Oh, man. Is that because they don't want women in there? Is it because there are so many that they can no longer keep up with the demand? I think that they don't like women anymore, is my guess. Uh, He looks at the article that talks about women's corpses filling up fishing nets, some a mile long. And then he throws away the paper. He looks at some of the articles that Barney had sent him. Women's groups were protesting outside of the White House, but they got arrested. The Pope is kind of staying on the fence about all these messages from God stuff. He's not denouncing it, but he's also, he's not condoning it, but he's also not denouncing it. Sure, he'll wait 300 years and then do it. So one of these purification cults spokesmen says uh, that... The scripture defines women as merely a temporary companion and instrument of man. Women, he states, are nowhere defined as human, but merely as a transitional expedient or state. The time of transition to full humanity is at hand. This talk is so upsetting and despicable. Like, it's just terrible. Yeah, well, you know, the statement is that women aren't really human. They're they're companions and instruments. That point of view, again, it's not too far-fetched to me. No, there are many current faiths that hold similar points of view, whether they're upfront about it or not. We're seeing it, you know, in current events, that point of view. So this is going around the world. There is a report from the Emergency Committee on Femicide, which doesn't seem to take it as seriously as it should. Again, uh, saying that these men should be put in military cordons until it all just kind of blows over. Until it blows over. Hmm. So Barney's report is in there as well, because I guess he's involved with these on a national if not international level and he states that these outbreaks seem to start in specific areas in the world and then they spread out yeah this is like a really uh depressing game of pandemic yeah (laughs) so alan thinks about Anne and how much he loves her even though they just got married kind of out of convenience but they grew to have a deep passionate romance he thinks about her her smell and her feelings and then he says he shifted in his seat to conceal his body's excitement half mesmerized by the fantasy Now, he's into his wife. That's cool. But then there's this bit. And Amy would be there, too. He grinned at the memory of that prepubescent little body plastered against him. She was going to be a handful, all right. His manhood understood Amy a lot better than her mother did. No cerebral phase for Amy. 
what is going on? What is this? Well, it's a really jarring transition because suddenly he's sexualizing his own daughter. Yeah. It was almost like I was reading Lolita suddenly. And I went over the passage a few times to make sure I wasn't reading it wrong, that it wasn't just innocent. But no, I mean, he's definitely has sexual feelings for his own daughter. But then it shifts back to his wife and he starts thinking of kissing his wife and getting naked with her and then stabbing her. And he realizes that he actually has a knife in his hand and his fantasy became violent and it wasn't about sex. It was about bloodlust. And he realizes he's infected and he can't go home. And this sexualization of his daughter happened right in the transition to those kinds of thoughts. So I'm hoping it's caused by the the infection, but it's right. I'm not sure. So he thinks maybe I can go to Barney and he can help me. But he also has to warn Anne. So he calls her and he's crying, trying to explain. She's crying. And then finally she understands what's going on. And she promises to keep away and to keep Amy away. Next up, we get a report from Glasgow University about this mania. There is a link between aggression slash predation and sexual reproduction. Many of the same neuromuscular pathways are used for both violence and sex. Males and in many species have both behaviors coexisting, talking about how cats are very violent during mating. The writer, Sheldon, she had her PhD in experimental psychology. Is she tying her research into the story? I think so, for sure, yeah. And there's definitely a link between lust and, and aggression in real life. It's actually exploited in the horror genre a lot. It's just more under the surface than in this story. One right. thing that I kept thinking about is there's this great poem by Lawrence Rayab called Attack of the Crab Monsters, which is inspired yes. by the Roger Corman B movie. And it concludes, everyone is surprised and no one understands why each man tries to kill the thing he loves when the change comes over him. So now you know what I never found the time to say. Sweetheart, put down your flamethrower. You know, I always loved you. Uh, you There's a basic fear that the people we love will turn on us or we will hurt the ones we love. And of course, there's a basic fear about what lust will drive people to do. Puts them out of their minds in all sorts of ways. Uh, The report goes on to say that there is some mental switch that gets flipped in men's heads, but not in women. And some kind of contagion or infection that might be affecting this behavior. There are already many male murderers whose brains already work in this way. It's different, but this reminds me of cute aggression. Have we talked about that before on the show? I don't know if we talked about it on the show before, but it's definitely, it made me think of cute aggression as well, just because I'd read about it recently. Right, yeah. It's like when you see a puppy or a baby or something that's cute and you just want to eat it. Like, you say, oh, I just want to bite. I just want to bite bite this baby. It's so cute. I just want to... I'm going to squeeze his head off. Yeah. But that's an actual real thing Mm -hmm. that's happening in your body. And what it is, is you're... Your mind is trying to regulate your emotions. So like you feel an intense feeling like a protection or joy at seeing a child or a puppy. And your brain is like, I can't handle that much joy or focus. I need to bring things down. So I'm going to throw in some aggression on that to try and level you out. And it doesn't, it doesn't happen with everybody. It only happens with you know certain individuals. I feel it. That's something that I, I feel like if I see a cute baby or puppy. Well, anytime you, you said, oh, I just want to eat you up. You know, it's that. That's cute aggression. And it's also when um, they say it, it's similar to when people are super happy and they start to cry. Again, that's the body trying to trying to find that median emotional midpoint to bring you back down so you're not too happy. Back to Alan, he's thinking about uh, the sex and predation thing, and then he has to go use the toilet. He's still in the airport in Miami. At this point. Right. And so when he goes in, he sees a body on the floor and he says, of course, any sexual drive, boys, men too. Which I thought what he meant by that is it's just sexualization is going to cause this violence. It's not necessarily gendered. No. Because yeah. most men are heterosexual. This has been directed towards women. But yeah, if you if you have sexual attraction to men, then you're going to hurt them as well. So I, I thought, oh, mm-hmm. wow, this is crazy. So Alan makes it back to Ann Arbor. And from a letter from Anne to Barney, 
and a page of Amy's diary, we're able to kind of piece together what happens. So Anne didn't fully explain things to Amy about what was going on. And against Anne's wishes, she snuck out to see her father. He had come to the house, but the mother was like, you have to get out of here, as he asked her to do. Mm-hmm. And he basically says hi to them, but he leaves and goes to the lab. She sneaks off to see him. Alan kills his daughter, and then he kills himself. Uh, she had a note from him that the authorities took away, but it said, Sudden and light as that, the bonds gave, and we learned of banalities besides the grave. The bonds of our humanity have given... We are finished. I love. And we also find out that Anne is in hiding out in a cabin somewhere. Barney cut her hair and put mud on her face. And she went into town to get some supplies. And the people at the store called her sir. So the disguise worked. She uh, Some strange writing here describing Barney helping her. Thank you. Thank you, Barney, dear. Even as blurry as I was, I knew it was you. All the time you were cutting off my hair and rubbing dirt on my face, I knew it was right because it was you. Barney, I never thought of you as those horrible words you said. You were always dear Barney. By the time the stuff wore off, I had done everything you said. The gas, the groceries. Now I'm here in your cabin. With those clothes you made me put on, I guess I do look like a boy. The gas man called me Mr. What was going on with with Barney there? I mean, he so he's clearly you got to dress like a boy if you want to get out of here. But why? What did he say that was horrible? Is he under the influence of it as well as he was getting her ready for this? I think that might be the case. Is that that he was just trying to get rid of her before he made the final turn and became violent? I think yeah, I think so. She talks about reading in the paper how the men bombed an island full of refugees and that mm-hmm. some women stole an Air Force plane and then bombed Dallas. Yeah, I mean, this is turning into a war, although she still writes, isn't it strange how we do nothing? Just get killed by ones and twos, or more now they've started on the refugees, like hypnotized rabbits. We are a toothless race. She says, do you know I never said we, meaning women before? We always meant me and Alan and Amy, of course. Being killed selectively encourages group identification. You see how sane-headed I am. That's an interesting passage. Uh, Some time seems to pass, and she says that she thinks that the man at the store suspects she's a woman. Yeah, it's like he's calling her boy to let her know he's figured it out. It's almost a warning. She says the men and the boys all act like everything's fine and normal. One of them talked about seeing an angel. Uh, More time passes, and she needs to go into town for some fish hooks, and she notices the town is now liberated, and the men are more aggressive, and there are no more boys around. The old man gives her the hooks and he whispers to her, boy, them woods will be full of hunters next week. Right. It's a message. So yeah. no more going into town. After about six months, she has to flee the cabin and hide out in the woods. And she, she knows she won't survive the winter. She's writing to Barney, but she knows that he won't ever read it. This is really her just getting her, her last thoughts down. And she's putting all these letters in a baggie. Oh, Barney, how did this happen? Fast. That's how. Six months ago, I was Dr. Ann Alstein. Now I'm a widow and bereaved mother, dirty and hungry, squatting in a swamp in mortal fear. Funny if I'm the last woman left alive on Earth. I guess the last one around here anyway. Maybe some hold out in the Himalayas or sneaking through the wreck of New York City. How can we last? We can't. And then Anne concludes the story writing what is basically a suicide note. The thing I have to write down is that I saw an angel, too, this morning. It was big and sparkly, like the man said, like a Christmas tree without the tree. But I knew it was real because the frogs stopped croaking and two blue jays gave alarm calls. That's important. It was really there. 
I watched it sitting under my rock. It didn't move much. It sort of bent over and picked up something, leaves or twigs, I couldn't see. Then it did something with them around its middle, like putting them into an invisible sample pocket. Let me repeat, it was there. Barney, if you're reading this, there are things here, and I think they've done whatever it is to us, made us kill ourselves off. Why? Well, it's a nice place if it wasn't for people. How do you get rid of people? Bombs, death rays, all very primitive. Leave a big mess, destroy everything. Craters, radioactivity, ruin the place. This way there's no muss, no fuss. Just like what we did to the screwfly. Pinpoint the weak link, wait a bit while we do it for them. Only a few bones around. Make good fertilizer. Barney, dear. Goodbye. I saw it. It was there. But it wasn't an angel. I think I saw a real estate agent. That's the end of the story. A very dark joke at the end. Yeah. In a way, you know, it's one of those punchlines that doesn't make you laugh. It just makes you really sad. But it reveals that this is kind of a Monsters Are Due on Maple Street kind of story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, in that Twilight Zone episode, aliens were pushing us to self-destruct rather than do a messy invasion on their own. Yeah. And and that's what's happening here. They're using the Screwfly solution to depopulate the planet. And I got to admit that even though that was set up quite a bit throughout the story, it's still kind of surprised me a little bit i was so oh, hung yeah. up on the infection itself and the way that it played itself out in religion and socially and in the media that you know it didn't occur to me until that last paragraph oh this is this has been visited upon us by people who would prefer the earth to be theirs yeah. so great twist as well yeah yeah and of course i didn't see it coming because i was so uh, upset and disturbed by what yeah. was actually happening within the story that i wasn't thinking any deeper than the actual described events it's a chilling story man i mean i can understand why it's a such a popular one and why so many people suggested it yeah. uh, It made me feel very uncomfortable. There was a, a reality and a connection to current events that made me even more uncomfortable reading it. Gosh, I don't really know what else to say about it. The, there isn't much to say. It's very powerful. It's very upsetting and makes you think. Unfortunately, it's one of those horror tales that rings true on the mm-hmm. deeper level. And that makes it truly horrible. Yeah, well, I you know not a lot of not a lot of jokes in this one. It was just kind of a harrowing, uh, sad yeah. <laughs> tale. Really makes you think, and uh, I'll be carrying this one with me for quite some time. It's very well written. It she's very talented. I'd like to read more of her stuff for sure. Next week we're going to be doing another story. I, we actually haven't selected it yet, so uh, we'll catch up on social media and let folks know what that is. But for now, we want to thank some of our patrons, as always for allowing us to be able to continue to do this. And uh, I'm going to start with uh, Chelsea Robertson. Thank you so much. Ah, Kate Sherrod, I want to thank you. Lisa Wintler-Cox, thank you so much. Camilla Markison. Kurt Orozco, thank you. I want to thank Tia Bowman. I want to thank Sorsa Kelly. I'd like to thank Anne-Marie Neva-Brooks. Sam, thank you so much. And Jake Swenson, thank you so much. Thank you all for now. That's all we've got. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. 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 <laughs>